One of the most familiar and greatest words in the Christian vocabulary is the word grace. We use it a lot, and it's good that we do. And as we prepare eventually to come to the Lord's table tonight, my goal, the goal that I've said before myself, is to magnify the grace of God and uh, perhaps increase our personal appreciation of that grace uh, as the underlying reality of all Christian experience, the grace of God. The psalmist gives thanks in Psalm 65, verse 4. He says this, Lord, blessed are those you choose. Blessed are those you choose and bring near to live in your courts. We, those chosen, are filled with the good things of your house, your holy temple. Is that microphone too strong? Can we turn it down a bit? It's getting on my nerves. It's bound to be getting on yours. Is that okay? We'll persist. Drawn near, filled with good things, the good things of your house, your holy temple. So God's grace is actually the source of all blessing. And the greatest blessing that flows from His grace is the enjoyment of His fellowship, communion, the granting of a personal relationship with God, with Himself, as He adopts us. And that fellowship and communion is, which, is what every true Christian enjoys. Now, it will help with Bibles open uh, at uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, De Deuteronomy chapter 7, rather, verse 6 to verse 9. We're going to look at two passages this evening, uh, this one first, and then later on, a, a short passage from chapter 9 of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 7, 6 to 9. You are a people holy to the Lord. He's the Lord your God who has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be His people, His treasured possession. And then comes an explanation, lest uh, they forget it was all of grace. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers that he brought you out. With a mighty hand, he redeemed you from the land of slavery and from the power of Pharaoh. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who in turn love him and keep his commands. So verse 7 can't be read in any other way. God loved you because he loved you. God set his affection on you because he loved you. The grammarian would say that's a tautology. It's saying the same thing twice. He chose you because He loved you. He loved you because He loved you. Uh, 
Down the years, however, I've observed how the human heart has an aversion to the notion of the sovereignty of God. It's a doctrine that even some Christians seem to hate, preferring to think that it's we who do the choosing, we make our decision, and God responds. That salvation depends on a personal decision. After all, God has given us a free will. So his hands are tied until we give our consent for him to come into our lives. There are two main emphases in this passage. First of all, the love of God, and then the promise of God. The most familiar New Testament gospel verse reads, God so loved the world. That is, the world of both Jews and Gentiles. It's a truth we all readily accept. But probing a little deeper as to why God should love either a Jew or a Gentile is more of a challenge to our minds. Why should God love any individual human being? That's a perplexing question. Every man, woman, and child, without exception, is born with a sinful nature and sin against God by choice. We're all rebels by nature. We have no love for God. Israel, as a people, often pursued perverse and unworthy behavior. Just study the lives of Jacob and David, and you'll see they are convincing examples of, of this. They committed heinous sins, the most heinous sins, yet both Jacob and David figure prominently in salvation history. The reason for God's redeeming love is a mystery, apart from our knowing that it is God's nature to love. Psalm 136 verse 1 says, His steadfast love endures forever. 1 John 4 8 tells us, God is love the essence of his being. And uh, that's surely one of the most wonderful things that is said about our Creator. His love, on the other hand, is not only stated, but it's demonstrated practically in, in his, his goodness, his kindness, his faithfulness to the undeserving. God called a pagan moon worshiper called Abram and gave him promises that revealed just how amazing his grace was. This former idolater was promised a land flowing with milk and honey. Abram would produce a people as numerous as the stars in the sky, not just possibly, but certainly. Assurance was given to Abraham and his descendants on the basis of a covenant of love. You needn't turn to it, but Genesis 17 and verse 7, God speaking to Abraham, he said, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come uh, to be your God and the God of your descendants after you, the whole land of Canaan where you are now an alien 
I will give as an everlasting possession and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. The Lord acts in the same gracious way towards the new Israel, which incorporates Gentiles, many Gentiles, chosen and called out by God from the world of nations, from all tribes and languages. And Jewish Paul himself uh, saw himself as the chief of sinners. He confessed in Galatians 1 verse 13, he says, I persecuted the church of God and I tried to destroy it. He acknowledges God's grace both to the church, spiritual Israel, and to himself in his call. Galatians 6.14 is his testimony. Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ in which the world, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, that is neither Jew nor Gentile, counts for anything but rather a new creation. As God comes to those who are dead in trespasses and sin, sins and gives them new life, he continues, as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. It's an appreciation of God's grace. Grace is essential because there is no one who does not sin. 1 Kings 8 and 46, Solomon said so. Why did the Lord continue his love for mankind after we had sinned and continued in, to sin as the habit of our lives? A grateful Charles Wesley said, Depth of mercy can there be, mercy still reserved for me. Can my God his wrath forbear me, the chief of sinners spare. Why didn't God completely and permanently remove his love from sinners? That would have been justice. Why did the Creator even promise to love the people of his choosing with an everlasting love, an unconditional love, agape? The Lord appeared to us in the past, Jeremiah says, saying, I have loved you, with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. And William Cooper, Cooper speaks of God's unchanging love. It's higher than the heights above. It's deeper than the depths beneath. Beneath, It's free and faithful, strong as death. Malachi 3.6 says, God says, I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, you sons of Jacob are not consumed. The point there being, they deserve to be consumed. But love flows from God to us in spite of our moral failures. Charles Wesley again, he says, I have long withstood his grace, long provoked him to his face, would not hearken to his cause, grieved him by a thousand falls. Does that have an echo in your heart? I often reflect on the gracious words that uh, I think Collins already quoted this evening, Psalm 103, verse 10. The Lord does not treat us as our sins deserve, 
nor does he pierce, repairs according to our iniquities. How vital is all this grace? Take time to ponder. Suppose God were to treat you tonight as your sins deserved and repay you for your iniquities. What hope would any of us have? Here is truth for which to be forever thankful. Who is a pardoning God like thee and who has grace so rich and so free? Psalm 130, verse 3, we've sung it. O Lord, if you kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. The grace of God. If God gave me what I deserved, I'd be in hell. You too. At the Lord's table tonight, how important is it to you to be forgiven? To hear God say to you in the terms of the new covenant, your sins and iniquities I will remember no more. You know, as I stand here, I have happy memories of Charlotte Chapel's singing. Uh, you're not as good as you were, but... Uh, I, I, I remember. In fact, every church where I've ministered has loved to sing Spafford's hymn. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. And oh, a number of times Charlotte Chapel have lifted the roof off singing that one, but I love the line. Before I quote it, remember Pilgrim and Pilgrim's Progress, he got to the celestial city, and he said, my sins, my sins, what about my sins? And the reply comes, my son, I don't seem to have heard of them. My sin Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. A love of God. We do know, you know, that the Lord does not love the devil or demons. To suggest he does, as some have, one early church father called Oregon who believed that even the devil would be saved one day. That was universalism gone wild. But it's terrible sentimentality and terrible theology. How crass and shallow we can be sometimes when we speak of God's love. It's always a holy, righteous love. Um, I was reading as I know some of you do through the, the yearly Bible, but I use a different one, but we're going through the Bible uh, every year using a yearly Bible. I came across this in Proverbs 3.32. The Lord detests a perverse man. I think, is this the Bible I'm reading? But he delights in those who are blameless. Proverbs 11.20. 
The Lord detests men of perverse heart. Second Samuel 7 and verse 14. God is speaking to David about Solomon. And he says to David, I will be his father, he will be my son. When he does wrong, I'll punish him. But my love will never be taken away from him. As I took my love away from Saul, your house and your kingdom will endure forever. I took my love away from Saul. My love will never be taken away from Solomon. And that, uh, where have we heard that sort of thing before? Well, we've heard it in the New Testament. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Though they were not born, and they'd done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call, Rachel was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Now, we have to be honest in our exegesis about Scripture. That word hate cannot be watered down. It means exactly that, rejection, antipathy. And we know that God has treated and will treat Satan and his angels as their sins deserve. Jude, verse 6. The angels who did not stay within their own positions of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling, God has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness in, until the judgment of the great day. I was once uh, in Virginia, part of a group being taught how to evangelize, but in a very facile sort of way. I felt uncomfortable. It was in preparation to do cold witnessing out in the streets to confront passers-by with the words. We had to memorize them. Do you know God loves you and has a great plan for your life? Anyone prepared to listen to that, willing to say a brief prayer of acceptance there and then, tell them they've become Christians. It just takes a few seconds. The person teaching to us had led two or three hundred in that way. Then congratulate them and give them this assurance, once saved, always saved. Now I'm going to leave that with you. What do you think? That was the formula we were to follow. When that large number of angels first sinned in the timeless past, God's love was withdrawn from them and their eternal condemnation was sealed. To our knowledge, no opportunity for repentance was or ever will be given to them. The Bible says the lake of fire is reserved for the devil and his angels forever. God was just in exercising that judgment the guilty angels reap only what they've sown. And they were deserving of everything that was coming to them. 
Now then, in order for human sinners to appreciate what God has done for them in Christ, we must acknowledge that we are no less deserving of God withdrawing his love from us and exercising his judgment upon us. Yet, to the children of men, God wills to show mercy, prompting the question, why? What is man that you are so mindful of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels, yet crowned him with glory and honor. Indeed, our only refuge tonight is God's mercy. Jesus commended the attitude of a man who realized this, and his simple prayer has been used as a model and a good model. Jesus didn't say to him, God loves you and has a great plan for your life. The man beat his breast. We've used this prayer for 2,000 years, and rightly so. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. When God saves you, congratulations are not in order. But Jesus said, this man went down to his house justified. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross cycling. And a quote from our good friend Bruce Milne, God loves and saves his people because he loves and wills to save them. There can be no explanation beyond that. God, in his patience now, commands all men everywhere to repent, an opportunity he never gave to angels, to fallen angels. In grace, he grants men opportunity and space to repent. That's how great his grace is. That's the very best news you and I can hear. If they do repent, he will forgive. 2 Peter 3 verse 9, He is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But what if people don't repent? What then? Well, the solemn answer, the answer is a solemn one, rather. Jesus plainly taught that God will treat presumptuous, unrepentant, sinful human beings in the same way as fallen, unrepentant angels. God makes choices. That's what this passage teaches. He's an electing God. It's, it's all over the Bible. There can be no argument. The church is referred to as the elect. It's another name for them. And God said in Romans 9 again, verse 15, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But the question rises, what is the choice, the, the basis of his choice? What is the basis of his choice of those whom he sets apart in a special way through redemption and to whom he gives eternal life. Acts 13, 47, The Lord commanded Paul and Barnabas, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life 
believed. God doesn't tell us how he elects. That's one of those hidden things that belong to him. The names of those appointed by God for eternal life were written indelibly in the Lamb's book of life. Paul, summarizing his teaching in Romans 9 and verse 16, said, Salvation depends not on the human will or human exertion, but on God who has mercy. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and whomever he wills, he hardens. One of the old hymn writers, Robert Robinson, expressed his own personal gratitude for the grace of God. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let that grace, Lord, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Note the Bible terms for the redeemed. They are the Lord's people. They are a particular people. They are a holy nation. They are a royal priesthood. They are his chosen, his elect, his treasured possession. A people more highly prized than all the peoples of the earth. And the Lord's table is for the elect. The unbeliever Scripture says, has no part in this and is solemnly warned in Scripture not to partake. It's exclusively for the blood bought and the blood sprinkled. God's covenant of grace established communion between himself and Israel that was not matched by any other nation on earth. He dignified and honored a people in a unique way. Robert Murray McChain of Dundee in the 19th century, reflecting on the love and grace of God, wrote with feeling. Some hymns have feeling, and this is one of them. Chosen, chosen. Not for good in me, wakened up from wrath to flee, hidden in the Savior's side, by the Spirit sanctified. Teach me, Lord, on earth to show by my love, how much I owe. We'll be singing that right at the end of the service this evening. But search this passage in Deuteronomy 7 or any other passage of the Bible for a reason why God loved you, why God chose you, why He gave you the gift of faith, to use Bible language, why He granted you repentance, to use Bible language. If you can find a reason, let me know. For I can only conclude that we owe it to the freeness of His grace for which we shall be eternally grateful. In the Bible, no cause for God's love other than His sovereign will is given. First Samuel 2.8, He is the Lord who raises up the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a throne of honor. David said, Let the Lord do to me whatever seems good to him. He reached down to lift me up out of the miry clay and set my feet on a rock. Now we're going to read the second passage. It's uh, page 188. It's going to be much briefer. You'll be glad to know. 188, a little more of the same, nevertheless. Deuteronomy 9, 4 to 6. After the Lord your God has driven the Canaanites out before you 
Do not say in your heart, the Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. No, it is on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. It is not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you are going in to take possession of their land. The Lord your God will drive out these nations before you to accomplish what he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Understand then, it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess, for you are a stiff-necked people. So we've seen it's not because of their strength or their size or their merit now, nor does it, is it because they deserve the land on the basis of their righteousness or integrity. God judged the Canaanites who hated him, expelling them from the land promise to Abram, a promise renewed even to a stubborn people, if the gift of the land had been contingent on their righteousness, it were a gift they'd never receive, a land they'd never occupy. The grace of God is highlighted once more. The land was a gift of divine grace and repeated three times, a Hebrew device for emphasis. It's not because of your righteousness. Chosen not for good in me. That could never be because there is none righteous. Psalm 14, 2 and 3. The Lord looks down from heaven on the sons of men to see if there are any who understand. Any who seek after God. All have turned aside. They have become together corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. So if you thought you were the exception, you weren't. There was nothing in those whom God chose to commend them or entitle them to his favor. The reason his love is bestowed upon us is not to be found in you and me, but only in the heart of God himself. A truth to promote the deepest, deepest praise. Romans 8:29 those whom God foreknew or foreloved I, there isn't time to explain to you how that word means foreloved not just that he knows beforehand of course he knows beforehand everything but this has to do with people he foreknew them Adam knew his wife and she conceived it's intimate it, it, it's, it's, it's affection. Those whom he foreloved, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, to be holy like his Son, that he might be the firstborn amongst brethren. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Predestined to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves, even Jesus. Everyone already a Christian here tonight who has believed can trace their faith and salvation back to an eternal decision of God to bring them to glory. 
they can look forward to that glory as a guaranteed certainty. Leviticus 20, verse 26 of his people, he said, I have set you apart from the nations to be my own, chosen and called to acknowledge him as their God, to live according to his will above all the peoples of the earth. This grace gave rise to the most exquisite worship from a people redeemed. It put a new song in their hearts, worship into their lives. One song was, not unto us, not unto us, but to your name be the glory. And we sing a debtor to mercy alone, covenant mercy we sing, nor fear with thy righteousness on my person and offering to bring. And we've sung earlier on, only by grace can we enter. Only by grace can we stand. Israel was stiff-necked, unyielding, unattractive, obstinate, unrighteous, feeble, small in number, and rebellious. Nothing in them or done by them could make God love them. Yet he did love them. And not because they decided to love him first, nor because they chose him first, they did neither. If you love the Lord tonight, and I hope you do, you love him only because he first loved you. If we love him in return, we will keep his commandments. Verse 9 of this passage, Know that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps a covenant of steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. He made it his personal delight to do the church good. Out of his own will, he resolved to do so. David said, 2 Samuel twenty-two twenty. He saved me, he rescued me, because he delighted in me. His love having no cause but his own good pleasure. In quieter moments, I reflect on these truths and I become overwhelmed by the wonder of it all. I say, Lord, why, why me? My brothers are not Christians. Many in my wider family are not Christians. Why, Lord? From a godless background? God, Matthew Henry says, God made himself a debtor to his own promise, which he would perform in spite of his people's unworthiness. But a final reminder to those who are chosen and faithful, and you know it, we are to be recognized by two of those main characteristics I've mentioned. First of all, we love him, we keep his commandments. We are not saved by our good works, but we're certainly saved for good works. There are two, these are two supreme expectations God has of those whom he chooses to love him and to keep his commandments. Peter preached the gospel on the day of Pentecost. They came under conviction. The audience, people were converted. The Holy Spirit poured love for God into their hearts. 
they were commanded to repent and believe. And another command was issued to test their love for God in a practical way. What was that? Get baptized. Test of obedience. Not, not on your life, Lord. I, I'm afraid of water. I'm not going to take the plunge. No, it's not for me. Don't think it's necessary anyway. No, Lord. Two words that should never go together. No, Lord. And as you continue in the Christian life, that's a once-for-all test of obedience. Right at the beginning for these folks, these 3,000 who were converted on the day of Pentecost, as you continue in the Christian life, there is a continuing test of obedience. The Lord Jesus says to his people, the church, do this in remembrance of me. Do you want to know if you love the Lord? Do this? Lord, I don't really think it's necessary. The Lord never made suggestions, only commands. He's the Lord of the church. Why call me Lord and not do the things that I say? Well, in conclusion, have you seen, ever seen Fiddler on the Roof? Um, I think it's a great story, isn't it? Tevye, the affable Jewish milkman, sings a song to his wife, Golda, who does his washing and hines his shirts and cooks and darns his socks. I'm sure you've got a wife who darns your socks, man generally cares for you. Well, this is Golda. But Tevye comes home one day. He's been thinking. He has a question for his wife of 25 years, which puzzled her at first. Been speaking to his daughter, who wanted to marry someone because she loved, she loved him. What a strange thing. Uh, the matchmaker was the one who really got you together. Golda, he says, do you love me? Do I love you? For 25 years, I've washed your clothes, I've cooked your meals, I've cleaned your house, I've borne your children, I've milked the cow. But Golda, now I'm asking, do you love me? And she says, Tavia, I'm your wife. I know, but do you love me? And she turns in disgust do a bit of a soliloquy. Do I love him? For 25 years I've lived with him, I've fought with him, I've starved with him. 25 years, if that's not love, I don't know what is. Tevye then to his wife, after overhearing this, because she wasn't too far away, then you love me. Golda says, I suppose I do. And Tevye says, and I suppose I love you too. That's so nice. And after this exercise, they sing together. And they sing, this conversation changed nothing. Even so, after 25 years, it's nice to know. So we observe from this little example 
how a life of love is linked with a life of service and faithfulness. Psalm 116 says, uh, I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my plea for mercy. Because he inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. I called on the name of the Lord. I prayed, Lord, deliver my soul. Hear, O Israel, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And these commandments I give you today are to be upon your hearts, upon the center of your affections. Golda and her husband did not serve each other out of duty, just keeping commandments. There was love. David says, oh, how I love your law. I've said in conclusion, now I'm going to say finally. Some preachers, conclusion, finally, to finish, one more thing. A final word from the Apostle Paul. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called sons of God. We don't really know how much we owe to God's gracious love, do we? Beloved, now are we the children of God. And the truth is, we don't know how much we owe to God's grace in this world. And according to Murray McChain, nor will we know until this passing world is done, when has sunk yon glorious sun, when I stand with Christ on high, looking o'er life's history, then, Lord, shall I fully know how then, not till then, how much I owe. Do you feel that gratitude in your heart tonight? Of all the things the risen Lord might have said to Peter after his resurrection, he chose to ask him the same question. Peter, do you love me? Then serve me. Do what I tell you. Follow me. If you love me, keep my commandments. Feed my lambs. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. The grace of God. Now, a word, a final word. For anyone who isn't a Christian tonight, if you're not a Christian, after what I've said, does it mean you don't have to do anything? Just sit back and let it happen because God is sovereign. God will do it all. Oh, no. It doesn't work like that. Scripture says we must call on him. And if you do, God has given you another promise, and it's just for you. You must rise to your personal responsibility. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. The psalmist makes a bold statement. I love the Lord because he heard my call. He set his affection on us. You are to set your affections on him tonight. See that you do not refuse him 
who is speaking to you. It's possible to refuse him. Don't do it. It's not worth it. So let's pray together.